I wasn't thinking of all stakeholders. I was thinking of stockholders. And you weren't thinking of how it is how it relates to our laws, no. to, to our legislative infrastructure. And that's where systemic racism comes from, too. And, and it started with the comprom- with the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution. You know, you cannot tell me that we don't have systemic racism if you can't recognize that the Constitution or- originally uh, refused to call me a whole person. Welcome to Peter and Phil's Courageous Conversations, a podcast addressing race relations and social issues in hopes that you'll be inspired to do the same. Now, let's begin our conversation with your hosts, Dr. Peter Weinstein and Dr. Philip Nelson. There is a self-interest agenda that is corrupting our conversation. The former president introduced the methodology of of inserting information designed to design for self-promotion, whether it was true or not, denying information that did not support self-promotion or his individual agenda whether it was true or not, and sticking to it. Uh, yesterday, a House representative, it was the day that they censored the congressman, one of the Republicans' congresswomen, uh, decided to attack the, the Minnesota representative and accuse her of marrying her brother and funneling a million dollars to his political campaign. and. One of the uh, television stations in Minnesota did a um, an opinion piece and said that the problem with our country now is is that when a when a, a politician says something outrageously false, they get coverage. If they continue to to do the same thing, we forget about it. That becomes their style, their position. But wrong is wrong, and he was really admonishing the press. We can't let non-factual information be promoted by our leaders just because that's all they talk about. Well, I I think the press, they have added gasoline to the fire. Really? How's that? By allowing airtime for insanity. I know it sells news. I mean, it sells advertising, but on all stations, at all networks, they are adding fuel because they're not reporting news any longer, they're selling commercial time. Yeah, well, that that is the danger. I mean, the danger is how do you how do you cover that without promoting it, without giving them giving the individual the opportunity to to uh, broadcast essentially, right? But I I don't blame that on the press, and I think it's it's dangerous for us to start trying to figure out. How do we control the press so that, that so that only the truth comes in? Because in order to share that some somebody is willing to attack a colleague or a, a legislature or a leader with lies, you have to expose the lie. Well, you know? I'm, I'm commenting maybe on the editorial that goes on either side of the fact. Well, I guess if that were the case, then 
I would never know that there was a reporter that wanted to say, we need to address this somehow. But in the process of doing it, he had to show the example. Right. I go back to Walter Cronkite and everybody else. I know. And that's an editorial on, on either side. We just happen to like that editorial. Right. You know. But at the same time, I, I think I'm what I'm trying to warn against, and I know you didn't, you didn't mean this, but every time I hear, I want to do that too. And I want to go back to Walter, Walter Cronkite time as well. But, and we've talked about this before, but right. that's over. Yeah. That's over. We, you know, the, the genie's out the bottle now. And honestly, even though we want to go back there, I'm not sure that that stopped progress. I think it made it muddy but I don't think it slowed it down any iota. As a matter of fact, if it hadn't been for Cronkite's breakaway, if you will, we wouldn't have known the truth about Vietnam. It would have never been admitted to the American people. And, and honestly, what our former president brought to the table, the, the, the technique we talked about, that was the same technique that they were using that technique in the 50s. And what you're seeing, what I'm seeing now, this resurgence of um, bombastic denial, this, this is what was going on in the 50s and 60s. And so, yes, it's disappointing to say we haven't moved an iota, but, but at least we know they're there, right? At least, at least we've, we've outed them. And I think that's a positive thing. Because otherwise, we now know how neat, how naive we were when we thought racism was dead because we had a black president. We now know just how genteel we were and how blinded we were when we thought we had a, a non-race conscious society simply because we elected one black president. You know, I think you just brought something to my attention about myself. I think you're right. I think with the election of Obama, I thought we were over the hump. I thought we were heading in a, in a direction of one, you, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing, reading, hearing is more of that actually created greater separation. It brought people further apart than, in, rather than bringing people further together, more together. I understand your interpretation of that. I'm not sure it did. I think we are more aware of how apart we really were or really are. I don't think it drove anybody to any one side or the other. If anything, I think the people in the middle, and I still think the that the moral majority is moral. I really do. And I think the moral majority wants to get it. But I also think that the moral majority listens to the fringes and can be swung one way or the other, depending on the tide and depending on the message and how it's couched. And I know that's disappointing. I get that. And I don't think America is the America that anybody thinks it is. <laughs> I think everybody is just is disappointed in America based on their vision of America. But I think that's okay if we teach government in a way that says America is the 
some of the majority. And the ideal America, whether it's from the far left or far right or in the middle, will always be aspirational. And, and we're going to always be struggling with achieving that aspiration. Now, when you have one group that wants to maintain power at all costs and wants to promote legislation that only in, empowers a, a certain group of people and another that wants to use America's resources to assure a livelihood for a certain group of people, for a different group of people, you're going to always have to struggle. But let's take race out of it and let's just talk about the stock market. The, the one percenters? No, no, not necessarily. They may be the one percenters eventually. I'm just going to give this analogy at the risk of sounding as if I'm attacking a company or something like that. But, but when we developed air pressure sensors for tires, when that technology was developed, first of all, somebody thought of the, of the idea of being able to monitor air pressure and send that information to a chip in your car, right? So that you will know when your tire is low. And the reason they did that was out of concern for safety. Now, once they did it, they had invested a lot of money in, in developing it, et cetera. And then for safety's sake, they required all car companies to include this chip in their cars. We suddenly mandated a, a company. Now, the people who pushed that law were the owners of that company. But now, did they do it for profit or did they, did they do it for safety? I would contend they probably did it for both. But either way, that's just an example of how some of our laws are established that create the one percenters. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? But when you were talking about the stock market, I was just thinking about the investors who are the one percenters who actually benefit from the activities of the stock market financially and, and versus the consumers who benefit from the stock market in the end products that come through the companies from that standpoint. So you aren't even thinking about the owners. Who, who also, when they go public, benefit from it. No, I, I was thinking more of, of the, the stockholders, not the, I wasn't thinking of all stakeholders, I was thinking of stockholders. And you weren't thinking of how it, is re, how it relates to our laws, no. to, to our legislative infrastructure. And that's where systemic racism comes from too. And, and it started with the, the three-fifths compromise in the Constitution. You know, you cannot tell me that we don't have systemic racism if you can't recognize that the Constitution originally uh, refused to call me a whole person. So, Phil, I got a, a question on that topic. Just just that one three-fifths topic. If you found 100 bell-shaped curve people, they fit in everywhere demographically and ask them about it, what percentage of the American population actually even knows about the three-fifths? I have no idea. I have no idea. I I will tell you that I I am I have been dumbfounded by the ignorance of some. My point, then it goes back to something you just said. Hold that thought for just a sec. You were talking about educating on government. Yeah. Okay. Really, we don't educate much on any of these things any longer, do we? No. And the reason and and the reason is ignorance is bliss for certain sides of, of the argument. We don't 
clearly educate about history. And of course, we educate, depending on where you are in the country, on the history that you want the, your children in your community to know versus what is real history. You know, history is now edited. It's not necessarily what the facts were. It's what you want the facts to be. We don't educate nearly as much on government and civics as we used to or should. I mean, it, it, that, that whole three-fifths discussion, I wonder how many people know about the three components of the U.S. government, executive, legislative, and judicial branches. The people who pass the citizenship test know more about the U.S. government than the people who live in the United States. Well, I'm always amazed that it's, it, it, it always appears uh, that it's the downtrodden that have to educate American citizens about their own government. There are people in the rest of the world who can educate us better about ourselves. Yes, but the danger there is, is that they have a perspective that's not necessarily American. No, no, no. Right? No. And, and so if everybody's not participating, then... America will drift, right? If only the fringes are participating in defining America, the danger, that's the real danger of voting rights restrictions. You know, we've got, and I, we don't talk a lot about veterinary medicine in our podcast, but you've got 100, you've got 400 veterinary students on campus plus. Be interesting to, to do a, a civic survey of 400 veterinary students, highly educated, fully committed, resilient individuals who've gotten into veterinary school, have survived one, two, three years of school. How much in their life experiences do they know about the world that they're about to enter once they complete veterinary school at a political level, at a government level, et cetera? I think you'd be surprised. The, the how well they how smart they are or how um, how little they have paid attention how knowledgeable they are yeah no I, I'm I'm just curious because that's one pool that's, yes that's the top I, pool I understand and and I I think you'd be surprised I also think you'd be surprised at how active actively engaged they are on both sides of the coin. I, I'm very, now that I'm on faculty, I'm more and more aware of all of these different issues. It's just an interesting, because it's, it's the, the professional students are on one side of the bell-shaped curve. Now, they yes. represent yes. A, a lot of diversity, but yes. they're on one side of the bell-shaped curve. Well, in, in this college, they do. Yeah, well. Okay. There's not much diversity in the veterinary profession no. as a whole. Right. And... When I was at another institution at another time in the 90s, there were many instances of closeted racism among the student body. Mm -hmm. You could count the number of underrepresented minorities on two hands if you were lucky. Uh, in many cases, just one, one hand, and you couldn't feel that one hand <laughs> in all four classes, right? Right. And so it was safer for racist language and racist emotion to be expressed. But even it was, that was still done under the table. And those students who came through at that time had to be brave and had, and, and had to suffer 
uh, insults and arrows. But then so did I, even as, a, even as an associate dean. I was diminished to just a Black person, too, throughout that period, you know, but not necessarily by my colleagues. My colleagues, regardless of their position, regardless of their political position, their political opinion, treated me professionally for the most part. But I knew whose houses I was welcoming and whose I wasn't. Yeah, I, I just would be interested in, in um, without getting too political, just to see how aware of the, the civics of the country. What would be interesting, and I don't know if you can get the, the, the um, I'm sure you can, this, the uh, test that, that uh, people go through when they become a citizen, but it would be interesting to, to submit a group of professionals to the citizenship test and see how they did. It would be. And I think you would find differences by age, by, uh, by economic status. It would be an interesting test, but um, I'm not sure what I could do with it. You can't do anything with it except to validate the fact that we have done a lousy job of educating on government, civics, and history. Well, I think we knew that anyway. So why don't we just focus on that? Well, I agree, but we all like statistics to prove what we know, you know. And you need to know where you are to know if you move. Yeah, right. well, that, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Thank you for joining us for another Courageous Conversation. Be sure to follow us and check back next week for more.